0: Thank you, Luke, and the rest of the music team for leading us in worship through songs so excellently. There is no one like our Savior, and we gather to worship Him. Praise the Lord. Well, if you have your copy of God's Word, and I hope that you do, I trust that you do, go ahead and take and turn with me to Daniel chapter 3. Daniel chapter 3. Last time that we were together, we had Daniel... In Babylon, he was left in Babylon proper in the city to keep all of the affairs in order according to chapter 2. We have Nebuchadnezzar with um, all of the rest of the officials in the plains of Dura establishing worship of himself, of his kingdom, and of his gods. And it looks like evil is winning, that God is losing And in those moments, we were reminded last week that God is still on his throne, that he is sovereign. He's sovereign over arrogant authorities. He's sovereign over envious enemies. And he's sovereign over probable persecution. Persecution. What comes to your mind when you think of persecution? When you hear that word, what comes to your mind? What do you feel when you hear the word persecution, when you think about it? Do you feel that you've ever been persecuted? you feel that our church has been persecuted? In 2018, a group of over 100 of our brothers, pastors in China who were being persecuted, issue, issued a public statement in response to the growing wave of persecution in their nation. And several of those hundred, over 100 pastors who signed this statement, wrote it and signed it, have been arrested. Their churches have been shut down. Some of them have even been killed. But here's what they wrote. When thinking about persecution, as persecution was uh, sweeping into their hometowns, into their churches, they wrote this. Quote, For the sake of faith and conscience, for the spiritual benefits of the authorities in China... And of society as a whole, and ultimately for the glory, holiness, and righteousness of God, we make the following declaration to the Chinese government and to all of society. Three main points. Number one Christian churches in China believe unconditionally that the Bible is the word and revelation of God, it is the source and final authority of all righteousness, ethics, and salvation. If the will of any political party, the laws of any government, or the commands of any man directly violate the teachings of the Bible, harming men's souls, and opposing the gospel proclaimed by the church, we are obligated to obey God rather than men. And we are obligated to teach our members of our churches to do the same. Number two, Christian churches in China are eager and determined to walk the path of the cross of Christ and are more than willing to imitate the older generation of saints who suffered and were martyred for their faith. We are are willing and obligated under any circumstance to face all government persecution, misunderstanding, and violence with peace, patience, and compassion. And finally, number three, Christian churches in China are willing to obey authorities in China whom God has appointed and to respect the government's authority to govern society and human conduct. We believe and are obligated to teach all believers in the church that the authority of the government is from God, and that as long as the government does not overstep the boundaries of secular power laid out in the Bible, and does not interfere with or violate anything related to faith or the soul, Christians are obligated to respect the authorities, to pray fervently for their benefit, and to pray earnestly for Chinese society." For the sake of the gospel, we are willing to suffer all external losses brought about by unfair law enforcement. And out of the love for our fellow citizens, we are willing to give up all of our earthly rights. For the sake of the gospel, we are prepared to bear all losses, even the loss of our freedom and our own lives. And several of them paid that ultimate cost. What do you think of when you think of persecution? Would you be able to write what they wrote about persecution? Would you agree with what they wrote? Would you change anything about what they wrote? Or would you stand with our brothers and sisters in China? Persecution, as we looked at last week, comes from men and women who oppose God and his people. Think of Jezebel in the Old Testament. She just hated God and his people. And so she did everything that she could to cause them to suffer. Psalm 119, 161. Princes, persecute me without cause, but my heart stands in awe of your words. In Jeremiah 38, Jeremiah was persecuted because he was a mouthpiece of God. He was a spokesman. He was a prophet on God's behalf. In Acts chapter 12, as we studied this last semester, you had James who was executed because of his faith and because of his preaching. You have Peter in prison to be executed, but God miraculously let him go. Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 through 12, teaches that there are many different forms of persecution. Persecution takes many different forms. Jesus says, blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, falsely say all kinds of evil against you. Rejoice and be glad, because your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Persecution takes many forms. We also saw last week that persecution is normal. It's normal. We read that verse last week. In our Bible reading time, 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 14. Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal that's happening to you. Don't be surprised. Persecution's inevitable. It's coming. Thirdly, we saw that Satan, his ultimate ultimate desire is to destroy all of God's people. Genesis 3.15, the curse was that there would be enmity between the devil and us. Revelation chapter 2, back in our study of Revelation, in Revelation chapter 2, verse 10, it says that the devil is about to cast some of you into prison. So the police are going to cast them into prison, but the devil's behind that action. But through it all, number four, we saw that God is sovereign over that persecution. He's on his throne. He's sovereign. So my question to us this morning, as a church and individually, how... Would you respond to persecution? How should you respond to persecution? And how will you? Because it's coming. How will you respond? I think that the verses that we will study this morning will give us three very clear responses that we as believers must have in the face of persecution. Let's read our passage this morning, Daniel chapter 3, verses 15 through 18. Nebuchadnezzar says to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Now, if you're ready, at the moment that you hear the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, and bagpipe, and all kinds of music to fall down and to worship the image I have made, then very well. But if you do not worship, you will immediately, at that very moment, be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. And what God is there who can deliver you out of my hands... Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to give you an answer concerning this matter. If it be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Father, we come to these verses this morning and there, there's a, a feeling as we read them and as we, we put ourselves and the sandals of the people standing next to them, as we get to eavesdrop on this conversation that they have with Nebuchadnezzar, as we get to listen to their determined response, there is a sense and a feeling that where we are stepping is holy ground. That this response is something otherworldly. That there's something supernatural about what they are saying, how they are saying it, and why they are saying it. And we need to know what that is. So, Father, I pray that you would be pleased by your grace to take us deep into their hearts this morning. Give us an understanding not only of what they're saying, but why they're saying it, where it's coming from, and give us the same heart, The same goal, the same desire, the same motivation, and the same heart that these three men have. I pray that as we listen to their testimony, our brothers who have gone before us, that you would place steel into our spine and get us ready for the day when we will stand before princes and kings and speak words like theirs. Teach us, Holy Spirit, as we pray every Lord's Day, open our eyes that we would behold wonderful things from your law. We read these verses and we already see wonderful things. Take us deeper into the supernatural wonder of what's happening in these verses so that we would not remain unaffected and unchanged, but that we'd walk away from here determined to live today differently because of these three men and the amazing God that they serve. Be our teacher and our guide this morning. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Nebuchadnezzar, in verse 15, thinks that he's very powerful. He also thinks that God is powerful. And so he's trying to figure out who's more powerful. And that's why he says, what God can deliver you out of my hands? At the end of the day, Nebuchadnezzar says, I am better than God. I am more powerful than Yahweh. And as we looked at last week, the entire chapter is that uh, chiastic form, that chiastic structure, where you have all of those different bookends leading to one main middle crux that hinges the entirety of this chapter. And these verses, verse 16, 17, and 18, are that dead center middle, the theme of the entire chapter, and really the theme of the entire book, as these men trust in a sovereign God three responses to persecution. When it comes and it will, how should we respond? We're going to take their cue as they follow God and live out God's principles in their lives. Number one, if we're going to respond like them, if we're going to respond well, we need to be gracious, humble, respectful, and completely unintimidated by human authority. Number one, Be gracious, be humble, be respectful, and be completely unintimidated by human authority. They say in verse 16, oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to give you an answer concerning this matter. They're not being rude. You could read that as rude. They're not being rude. They're saying, you already know how we're going to respond, king. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar said, I like you guys, I'm very angry at you right now, I'm going to give you a second chance, I'm going to play the orchestra, I'm going to let the band start going, and just fall down and worship, and we'll be done. And what they're saying is, you don't need to give us a second chance. You don't need to strike up the band. Don't pay them for more hours of playing. Let them go, we've already made up our mind, we don't need any extra time. We don't need more time, our minds have been made up Now. They're about to die, and they don't ask for more time. That fascinates me. I would say, we know that we're going to die, but can you just give us a little bit more time so that we can prep our minds and our hearts and our souls for that death that we're going to experience? And they say, no, we don't need it. Even Martin Luther, you remember when he stood before the Roman Catholic Church, and they said, uh, we're going to condemn you as a heretic and, and kill you and execute you and burn you at the stake unless you recant. Remember what his, his answer was? Before he says his famous here I stand speech, he says, can I have one night to think it over? Let me just have one night. And then he comes back the next day and answers. I can't acquiesce to what you're asking. I can't do that. I have to say no. Here I stand. God save me. These three men don't even ask for more time. They don't need more time because they know God's sovereign. They trust him They know the scriptures. This is a first commandment issue. You can't worship any other gods other than God. And so they're willing to die for what they know to be true and right. Notice they call Nebuchadnezzar, O Nebuchadnezzar. They start off by saying that, not O king. If you go back up to verse 10, or verse 9, the Chaldeans say to Nebuchadnezzar, the king, O king, live forever. That's the first response. You are king, you're sovereign, we're underneath you. And here, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they are going to say, O king, but they start by saying, O Nebuchadnezzar. I think in their mind saying, you're just a man. You're just a man. The king may think he's exalted and has power over life and death, but he's just a man. And that enables them to refuse to be intimidated. They fear God more than they fear Nebuchadnezzar. They know that God places humans in authority in their positions of power, And God towers over human rulers far more powerfully, infinitely more powerfully than any human ruler may tower over us. And so they say we trust God. Maybe they had memorized Psalm 27 verse 1. Remember the Psalms, most of the Psalms had been written by the time of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Daniel... Maybe they had memorized Psalm 27, verse 1. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? When you understand who God is and how little any man is, it just puts everything into perspective. That's what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. Don't fear those who can kill the body and that's it. Fear God who can kill the body and the soul. They know that God has established Nebuchadnezzar as a ruler. Rulers don't get to rule because of their own wisdom, their knowledge, their abilities. It's because God wants them there. Whether it's for our blessing, whether it's for our judgment, God is the one who establishes rulers. That's Romans chapter 13. And so we are called to be gracious, to be humble, to be compassionate, to be kind, 1 Timothy chapter 2, pray for those who are in authority. Respect and honor those who are in authority. Romans 13 verse 6, we're called to pay taxes to our government. Jeremiah chapter 29 verse 7, we're called to seek the welfare of the city. And that's Jeremiah writing to exiles in Babylon. We're called to seek the welfare of the city. We are to submit to the government. It's very easy to see in the Bible that we are to submit to the government unless they ask us to do something that contradicts God's word. That's when we stop. God's word is the final authority. There's a a much bigger issue here than we can do in this sermon. Maybe at another time we'll study uh, the way that we interact with government because I think even in America we're given a little bit more leeway as Americans and with the freedoms that we do have to speak up against the authorities that God has placed in our lives. We still need to do that with respect, with honor, but the biblical principles are clear. 1 Peter chapter 2, thir- verse 13. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority. Romans 13, verse 7: Render to all what is due to them. Tax to whom is, is due, custom to whom custom is due, fear to whom fear is due, honor to whom honor is due. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 17: Honor all people, love the brotherhood. Fear God, honor the king. Don't fear the king, fear God, honor the king. And remember that's Peter writing first Peter chapter 2 Nero is the king and he says honor the king. And so these three individuals say we will be gracious, we'll be compassionate, we'll be humble, we'll be respectful, but we're also not intimidated by you. You're just a man. It's fascinating to me because remember chronologically speaking, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego are probably between 18 to 20 years old. I don't know about you, I was doing dumb stuff when I was 18 to 20 years old. And they're able to stand here in this moment and just say, we don't fear you, we fear God. We obey God, we don't obey you. You know, we typically don't do Mother's Day and Father's Day messages at CBC. I think I've done one Mother's Day message, I think I've done one Father's Day message. Um, But we always kind of in that sermon, as we just keep going through our study of the Bible, there's, there's a little moment where we can throw in a Father's Day message, Dads, here's your Father's Day message. You know who the unsung heroes of this story are? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's parents. Can you imagine what it required of these three individuals and how they were prepared by their parents for this moment? Even as their parents probably saw persecution coming. They knew that Babylon was coming in because Assyria had already destroyed the north, and so the parents were saying, hey, your God's people have no other gods before me. Maybe I'm memorizing the Ten Commandments, maybe I'm memorizing Psalms. Fathers, are you preparing your kids' hearts and their minds and their affections and their emotions for being persecuted and being able to say, I would gladly die because I don't fear man, I fear God. I think I, I can't wait to meet their parents, Lord willing, one day in heaven. I can't wait to talk to them, to say, what did you do? How did you train them? How did you teach them? And I'm sure that they will say, it was all God. It was God and his word doing that work. So dads, prepare your kids by getting them in front of the word of God every day and show them that Jesus is better than life itself. So if you lose your life but you gain Christ, it's gained. Second response to persecution, number one, be respectful, be humble, be compassionate, be gracious, and be completely unintimidated by human authority. Number two, if we're going to respond the way Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego respond, number two, be completely confident in God's delivering power regardless of the danger be completely confident so number one be completely unintimidated number two be completely confident in God's delivering power despite whatever the dangers may be despite the dangers be absolutely confident God can deliver you remember Nebuchadnezzar had said in verse 15 what God is there to deliver you and Shadrach Meshach and Abednego are just giving the answer our God that's the answer we don't need to answer you. Uh, we don't need more time because our God can deliver us. They're just answering. Our God can deliver us. They even throw themselves into Nebuchadnezzar's question. What God is there who can deliver you? And they answer. Verse 17, my Bible says, if it be so. Literally, it's if our God exists. So what God is there? Well, If the God that we believe in exists, he can. That's what they're saying. So we'll place ourselves inside of your question. You're powerful. You think you have gods that are more powerful than our God. And if our God exists, then we absolutely believe he has more power than you do. And he's going to prove that. They're answering his question. God has the power to deliver us. But notice what they say. If it be so our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. He is able to save us from the fire. He will deliver us from you and what you're trying to do. There's two different things that he's saying, that these three men are saying. They're they're simply saying, Nebuchadnezzar, our God has the power to deliver us from the fiery furnace, but he might choose not to. He might choose not to. They don't presume, because in verse 18, they're going to say, even if he doesn't save us from the fire, we're not going to obey you because he'll deliver us from your hand. Those are two different things. We might die in the fire, but you have no power once we die over where our souls go. So they say, God has the power to deliver us, and he might. He doesn't have to, but he has the power to. They don't presume that he will. He just might. He can, and he might. But they're not convinced that they're going to survive the fire. They're certain they're going to live forever after they die. They just don't know if they're going to die or not. By the way, where did they get the certainty that they're going to live after they die? They got it from the dream in chapter 2. There is an everlasting, eternal kingdom that God will establish with that rock uh, that comes out of the mountain with no hands and it's going to obliterate all the earthly kingdoms and establish an eternal kingdom. And they are a part of that eternal kingdom. Therefore, they know you can't touch our souls. We will live forever so we can die now. It's the dream that produced the daring action. This is similar to... Paul's words in 2 Timothy chapter 4 verse 18. Paul says, The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. You hear what he's saying? The Lord will deliver me from every evil deed and bring me safely to heaven. So Paul doesn't think deliverance from every evil deed means I'm never going to die because in order to be brought into the kingdom of God, you have to die. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say, you know what, we bank on ultimate deliverance. Physical deliverance, temporal deliverance, God can do that, and it'd be really good if he did, that'd be nice, but even if he doesn't, we're never going to bow. My son and I were at Lowe's a couple days ago, and we were just walking around, and he randomly says, hey dad, does God save people out of fiery furnaces anymore? And uh, I said, hey, where'd that question come from? Because he's not here, he's not in the main service. And uh, lo and behold, God sovereignly ordained that children's ministry is going through the book of Daniel right now, so they've been hitting all the same stories that we're going through. And so we talked a little bit about it, and so the question at hand was, God saved them from the fire furnace, does he still do that? Because we we talk a lot at our house about persecution, about dying for Christ. We talk a lot about that being a very real possibility. And so he's thinking, is that going to happen? And if that does happen, is God going to save me? And I said, "Uh, yeah, God can. And sometimes it does happen. Miraculously, it does happen where God delivers people in the midst of persecution. But not often. Usually he delivers by letting them die and bringing them safely home. And my son just goes, okay, (laughs) just need to know it, cross off the list, I'm probably going to die. Okay, it's good. (laughs) That's all I need to know. He might rescue us from the fire, but he will rescue us from you. Once we die, your control over what happens to us ends. That's what they're saying. Once we die, Nebuchadnezzar, you have no power over us. So he might deliver us from the furnace, but he will deliver us from you. This is what uh, Romans chapter 8 talks about. There's nothing that can separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. You cannot revoke my eternal life. I know that I'm safe in the arms of God, therefore I will obey you no matter what the danger, because I know God's ultimate delivering power. I know it. There's an urban legend about a husband and a wife who lived in New Jersey in their late 70s. The wife had a cat that she loved very dearly. The husband hated this cat. So one day, when the wife was out of town, the husband took the cat, put it in a bag, tied it up, tied some bricks to it and threw it in the Hudson River. Problem solved. (laughs) The wife got back and said, hey, where's my cat? The husband said, I don't know, dear started acting distraught and said, I will find the cat. Started putting up posters everywhere, reward posters, 500 bucks if you find this cat. Of course, no one finds the cat. The next week, the husband tells the wife, to show you how much I love you, I'll make the reward $5,000 for whoever will find the cat. So he goes to... The newspaper, the local newspaper goes to the copy editor and says, I would like an ad in the paper for a $5,000 reward for finding this cat. The man says, No one would ever pay $5,000 for a lost cat. No one on earth could be that generous. To which the man said, When you know what I know, you can be that generous. When you know, what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego know, you can be this daring. You can be this daring. I know you can do nothing to touch my soul. So kill my body, but you cannot kill my soul. Number three, if we are going to respond the way that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego respond, number one, you have to be completely unintimidated by human authority. Be gracious, be respectful, but be unintimidated by human authority. Number two, you have to be completely confident in God's delivering power regardless of the danger. And finally, number three, be completely submissive to God's will regardless of the consequences. Be completely submissive to God's will regardless of the consequences. In verse... 18, after saying he may deliver us from the fire, he can, he may, he may not, he will deliver us from your hand, verse 18, but even if he doesn't deliver us from the fire, even if he does not, let it be known to you. O king, again, kind, respectful, we're not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Even if he doesn't, he can deliver us from the fire but even if he doesn't, that doesn't change what we do. Brothers and sisters, we need in our vocabulary a but even if clause. We need that in our vocabulary. God can do this, but even if he doesn't, obedience is still obedience. God is still good. God is still sovereign. God's able to, but he just might not choose to. And so even if God doesn't save us from the fire, we will still do What is right? These three men are certain about God's power. They're just not certain about God's plan. Is God's plan to demonstrate His power by freeing us from the fiery furnace? Or is God's plan to let us die? We don't know. The early church father Jerome said, quote, Thereby, they indicate it will not be a matter of God's inability, but rather of his sovereign will if they do perish. This is so important because Nebuchadnezzar could think if he throws them into the fire and they die, I'm better than Yahweh. I won. And so they say, when you kill us, we've been delivered. God's stronger than you. This is what real faith looks like. Real faith always recognizes that God can, but doesn't always act in those ways. Think about people in our own church family. God can heal, but he doesn't always choose to. God can provide the job, but he doesn't always choose to. God can provide the relationship, but he doesn't always choose to. God can, but sometimes he says not right now. Notice what they don't say. They don't say, Nebuchadnezzar, we are going to call down deliverance from our God. They don't say, we're going to bind the fire with the power that God has given us. They say, God, it's up to you. What you choose to do is up to you. We submit ourselves to you, and we will do what's right regardless of the consequences. Faith never predicts God's ways. It just holds fast to God's word. You're not asking, can I predict how God's going to act? You're simply saying, I know what God's already said, and I'm living according to it. God absolutely can, and he might in this case, but he hasn't promised to, and we see this all throughout the Bible. Peter and Paul are both put in jail in the book of Acts. One is going to die. One is set free. Why? I have no idea. Because God can. That's what he chooses to do. Think of our own Savior. Sometimes the Father allowed him to go to literally walk through crowds that wanted to kill him, picking up stones to stone him, and he just walks through their midst completely unscathed. And then he winds up murdered on a cross. God can deliver. Sometimes he chooses to. Sometimes he doesn't. God may rescue us by snatching us from the persecution and the danger and the affliction, Sometimes God rescues us by letting us die in the affliction and then bringing us safely home. But what matters for these three friends is not their physical deliverance, but their spiritual obedience. That's what matters. We just want to obey God. And whatever happens, happens. We just want to obey. Going back to my son, he, when he was learning about the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and, and for those of you who teach in children's ministry, you have a greater impact than you think you do. As you open the Word of God to these kids and you show them the truths of God's Word, you have a massive impact on their hearts because these things reverberate in our kids' souls and they come home and they're talking about them and then randomly, just, just a random occasion, Ethan has an idea and he starts talking about the Word of God that you proclaim to him in children's ministry. So thank you for doing that so faithfully. He said, Dad, some people are afraid to die. I'm excited for righteousness. That was his quote. I wrote it up on the board. Said, we're going to frame that as a quote. Dad, some people are afraid to die. But I'm excited for righteousness. That's straight from here. Hey, I don't want to die in the fiery furnace if I don't have to. But more than that, I want to obey God. What matters for them is not deliverance, but obedience. They're saying, in essence, we're not going to decide what we're going to do based on what God may do. We're going to decide what we're going to do based on what God's already said. He already said it. Let's do it. Let's obey and move forward. Leon Wood writes, quote, if there is anything more rare than faith, it is submission. They submit. We'll obey, regardless of the consequences. Alistair Begg says, Faith is not believing in spite of the evidence. Rather, it is obeying in spite of the consequences. Faith is obeying in spite of the consequences. He goes on to say, we're called to obey even when it won't work out well for us. We're called to obey even when it seems better not to. Pragmatism is the enemy of obedience. When we base our decision-making on what looks more sensible or beneficial or understandable, then when it comes down to it, we're going to worship our culture's idols instead of obeying God. We're called to be faithful, not pragmatic. God said it, we'll do it. End of story. Sinclair Ferguson writes of these three young men, quote, they knew that should God deliver them, his name would be vindicated. They also knew That should they die, their faithful testimony would display the worthiness of their God and the unworthiness of Nebuchadnezzar's self-created idol. These men of faith would not have regarded their deaths in the flame to be a failure of faith, but rather an indication of God's will. So just like Job would say, though he slay me, yet I will trust him. I'm just going to obey. Do you ever read a story in the Bible and wish you didn't know how it ended? you ever have that where you're like, I'm familiar with the story, I know how it ends, so you start to read the beginning differently? I wish I could go back and have some form of amnesia to not remember this story. Because we read going, well, this is an easy thing for them to say because they get delivered, hooray. They didn't know that. They genuinely thought we might die. Probable that we will. But we're not going to bow. And because of that, I think, unfortunately, the, the deliverance from the fiery furnace gets highlighted because it's so spectacular and visceral. And we're going to look at it next week. It's amazing. But that gets highlighted as the miracle. Brothers and sisters, the miracle already happened. When they say what they say here, this is a greater miracle than their deliverance from the furnace. This miracle right here to say, we'll obey regardless of the circumstances, regardless of whether we're delivered, regardless of the outcome, we will obey. This is a greater display of supernatural miraculous power than Jesus himself standing in that fire, delivering them from the furnace. The miracle's already taken place. If the fiery furnace had consumed them, the miracle would have happened just the same. The miracle occurs when they respond the way that they did, not when they aren't burned. Walter Luthi, in his commentary on Daniel, says, that there are three men who do not worship in Nebuchadnezzar's totalitarian state is a miracle of God. That the three were not devoured by the fire is no greater miracle. Suppose the fiery furnace had consumed them. The real miracle would have already happened just the same. And Dale Ralph Davis in his commentary says, these men give us then a full balanced picture of faith. Faith knows the power of God. God is able. Faith guards the freedom of God, but even if he doesn't, and faith holds the truth of God, we will not serve your gods. How do we respond when persecution comes? If we're going to act like these three men, we will be gracious, we will be humble, we will be respectful, but we will be completely unintimidated by human authority. We will be in the midst of whatever danger there might be. We will be confident in God's power to deliver us. Yes, he can deliver us physically and temporally, but even more than that, and what we hope for the most, he will deliver us eternally. And no one can take us out of the hands of our God. And finally, we will be completely submissive to God's will and obey him regardless of whatever the consequences might be. So if you're anything like me, I read the story and I go, okay, that's clear to me. How do I get there? Because if persecution happened today, I would not respond the way they're responding. I would run as fast as I can and hide somewhere for a very long period of time. How do we get there? Can I just, in conclusion, give you three? There's a lot of ways, and we can have this conversation. I would encourage you, wherever you're gathering together for Father's Day today, I would encourage you to talk about this. How do we prepare our hearts now to respond like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Because it's coming, and we need to be ready. How do we respond like them then and get ourselves prepared now? Just three, three ways to get your mind thinking about these Uh, preparations number one read biographies of men and women who have gone before us in this i mean we're we're reading one of them right here read biographies brothers and sisters read biographies of missionaries read fox's book of martyrs read about people who have gone before us in saying god is better than life itself and i'd rather die i'd rather die for him and, and die in obedience than to disobey Read of George Verwer, who said, uh, he's a missionary, who said, we, have, we who have Christ's eternal life need to throw away our own lives. If you've been given eternal life by Christ, you don't need to worry about your life here, because you have eternal life already. Think of Nate Saint. Uh, you remember with uh, Jim Elliott, who was martyred, taking the gospel um, to uh, a people group who had never heard of the scriptures, who would never heard of the gospel. He says this, quote, The way I see it, we ought to be willing to die. In the military, we were taught that to obtain our objectives, we had to be willing to be expendable. Missionaries must face that same expendability. Once you come to Christ, you are a missionary and you are expendable. God might choose to call you home, God might choose to display his glory by your death. Adoniram Judson, another missionary, said quote, How great are my obligations to spend and be spent for Christ? What a privilege to be allowed to serve him and to suffer for him. But in myself, I am absolutely nothingness. Soon we shall be in heaven. And I want to live as we shall then wish we had done. (laughs) Soon we're going to be in heaven. I want to live now radically because I know that's coming. Philippians chapter 1, verses 20 through 21. This is kind of my... Life verse, You know, people that say, what's your favorite verse of the Bible? Well, all of it's amazing. Uh, what, what life verse, do you have a life verse? I don't know, I've got a lot of them. But if I had to narrow it down to one life verse, it'd be Philippians 1.21. To live is Christ and to die is gain. But if you go back to verse 20... He, Paul says in, under house arrest, I have an earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything but that with all boldness, Christ will even now as always be exalted in my body whether by life or by death. If I die, I want Christ to be exalted. If I live, I want Christ to be exalted. It doesn't matter because life is about Christ. I've already been crucified with Christ, Galatians 2.20. The, therefore, I no longer live. Christ lives in me. So I've already died. You can't kill Patrick. He's already dead. Once I came to Christ, Christ lives in me. Patrick, as you knew him, was gone. And so therefore, death is gained because I get more of Jesus, and that's all I've ever wanted. I just want more of Christ. So read biographies of men and women who have gone before us in this that will enable us to trust God, either to protect you from persecution or to strengthen you and sustain you in it, and regardless of how it turns out, to deliver you out of it into its eternal kingdom. Leon Wood writes... Quote, if one today has difficulty in remaining true to his faith in God let him remember three Judeans in foreign Babylon standing tall first before a golden image and then before a mighty ruler knowing that a blazing furnace awaited them and they had the courage to speak these words read biographies of men and women who have gone before us number two, to prepare yourself for that moment number two, obey in the little now Obey in the little now. Don't compromise now, and you won't compromise then. Make little compromises now, and you won't be in a place where you will stand tall and stand firm then. Do you joyfully submit to the Lord now? Do you obey regardless of the outcome now? Be faithful in the little, and God will enable us to be faithful in the much. Finally, number three. If we're going to be like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, if we're going to prepare our minds and our hearts, number one, read biographies of men and women who've gone before us. Number two, check your obedience now. How joyfully submissive are you to God now? Do you rationalize in your mind compromises left and right? I'll do this. I know it's not what God wants. Or do you say, I will obey regardless of the outcome? Finally, number three, fear God, not man. Fear God, not man. If you're like me, you read this and you go, man, I hope that God gives me the protection and the knowledge and the ability to say what I need to say in that moment because I don't have any idea what I would know to say in those moments. You guys remember the beginning of Proverbs the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. If you fear God, wisdom's going to flow out of you. So fear God, not man, and let wisdom be yours in those moments. John Knox was asked how he didn't fear the queen in light of. Uh, being executed he said this I've trained myself to fear the face of God and when you fear the face of God you do not fear the face of any man do you fear God remain respectful and law abiding remain humble and honoring of the governing authorities but at the end of the day when push comes to to shove you have to say I fear God not man I fear God not man a Romanian pastor in 1977 by the name of Joseph Tsone. We've talked about him before several years ago. He, in the face of being martyred for his faith, said to the persecutors, I'm ready to die. I'm ready to die. This is in 1977. This is not long ago. I'm ready to die. I'm following Christ. He was a pastor in Romania, and he says, I'm ready to die. He says this, to his persecutors, to the soldiers who are ready to take him and kill him. You said you were going to finish me off as a preacher. I asked my God, and he said he wants me to continue as a preacher. Now, I have to make one of you two angry. And I decided it's better to make you angry than God angry. I'm not going to offend God. I'm going to obey. I'm going to do what God tells me to do. But I know you, sir... You cannot stand this kind of opposition. You'll kill me in one way or another, but I've accepted that. And should you, you should know that I've even put everything in order and I've been made ready to die. As long as I'm free, I will preach the gospel. He was arrested and imprisoned several times in Romania during the 1970s. He was charged with being a Christian minister, a Christian pastor. Each time he underwent several weeks of intense interrogation, beatings, mind games. Finally, he was exiled from the country in 1981. And he wrote about the theology of martyrdom in his book, Suffering, Martyrdom, and Rewards in Heaven. And he said from a practical standpoint, all of his imprisonments, all of his beatings, all of his torture, all of his threats that were made to him and to his life got him ready for that moment to be able to write the book. He said this, quote, in the book, When the secret police officer tried to kill me, threatened to shoot me, I smiled. And I said... Sir, you don't understand that when you kill me, you send me to glory. You cannot threaten me with glory. You can't threaten me with glory. The more suffering, the more troubles, the greater the glory. So why say stop this trouble? Because the more suffering, the greater the glory up there. When he was being beaten during one session of interrogation, He told his interrogator this. Think about this. He looked his interrogator in the the eye as he's being pummeled by his fist and said, you should know. Your supreme weapon is killing. My supreme weapon is dying. And then he said this. And I just imagine him sitting up a little bit straighter in his chair with his arms tied to the chair. He said, now here is how it works, sir. You know that my sermons are all on tape all over the country, when you shoot me or you crush me, whichever way you choose to kill me, you only sprinkle my sermons with my blood. And everyone who has a tape of one of my sermons will pick it up and say, I'd better listen again to this. This man died for what he preached. Sir, my sermons will speak 10 times louder after you kill me and because you kill me. In fact, I will conquer this country for God because you killed me. So go ahead and do it. And then he says this. Dying for the Lord is never an accident. It's not a tragedy. It's part of the job. It's part of the ministry. And it turns out to be the greatest way of preaching. Our brothers, with the threat of the fire, say, we'll preach that our God can deliver us. And he will deliver us from your hand. But even if he doesn't deliver us from the fire, we'll burn Burn us up in the furnace and let us go to God because it's better to obey him than to bow down and obey you because we know nothing can separate us from the hand of our sovereign God. Father, we thank you so much for your sovereignty. Thank you for the kindness and the grace that you've given us in letting us see a window into Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, into Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael, into their hearts. God, prepare us now. Maybe we have great conversations with our families about these realities that our brothers and sisters around the world are facing, and it, it would seem that we're going to face it in our lifetime too. God, prepare us now. Prepare us to be able to say, some people are scared of death and they're scared of dying. But I'm excited for obedience. I'm excited for righteousness. I'm excited for glory and I'm excited for Christ. And if it takes me dying to get more of you, then so be it. Because you're all that I've ever wanted. Father, thank you that you can deliver us and you will deliver us ultimately. But even if you choose not to deliver us physically, temporally, I think of our precious church family, several people here, even in this room, who are praying for your delivering power in a situation at work, in a situation with a family member, in a situation with sickness. God, I pray that that this passage would minister to their heart. You can deliver, and you will ultimately deliver. But even if you don't choose to deliver in the temporal We will still do what is right. We will still praise you. We will still worship you and adore you because you are good and you do good all the time. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Let's go ahead and stand together and just sing the last portion of.